We are trapped in our history, and our history is trapped in us. James Baldwin. Bearing Witness, part of the Racial Reckoning Project, is a reflective dive into the week's events unfolding in the season of racial upheaval and, we hope, change. I'm Anthony Galloway, Executive Director of the Arts Us Center for the African Diaspora. And I'm Georgia Fort, an independent journalist. The Statue of Liberty is a perfect monument to our national mythos. It stands known as a monument to our triumphant nation of immigrants, something that causes deep cognitive dissonance for many in this country who note the hypocrisy in that statement alone. However, this statue began as a crowdfunded idea of French abolitionists who wanted to create a symbol of solidarity between France and the U.S. built on the resolve that we had ceased being a slaveholding society. The original design by Bertoldi had broken chains prominently displayed in it. However, we as a nation could not come to terms with such a prominent display of our national shame. And so, through negotiations and fundraising, compromises had to be made. While we honored our agreement with the designers to keep the chains, we hid them at the feet of Lady Liberty behind its garments. People faced with the harsh realities of our systemic failures often have a similar impulse. We can either do the hard work of addressing the harm we cause, be it systemic, intentional, or unintentional, and work to correct it, or we rewrite our reality through excuses, ignorance, or by blaming the very victims of our national carnage for their own tragedy. This week, we have seen the historical pattern on full display, the murder of Dante Wright, the defense in the Chauvin trial resting on an argument that Mr. Floyd was responsible for his own death, new anxiety around the decision of the jury, to more visual examples of police use of force on black and brown bodies, including those in protest. And we've also seen admonishments in our own nation for their lack of compliance. Indeed, we are trapped in our history, and our history is trapped in us. We have a lot to cover today, Miss Georgia. So let's go ahead and get to it. First and foremost, you have been there covering not only the trial, not only what's coming up with the Dante Wright murder, but also what's happening with the protests and we're even exposed in harm's way. I think I saw you cuss for the first time in some of your live streaming because you had to get out of the way of things that were flying around. Go ahead and break down this week for us. Well, I wasn't expecting that to come up, uh, but, you know, as a professional journalist, I really do uh, take serious, you know, my duties to report with professionalism. And uh, so it was, uh, for me, the first time being in a moment where I lost composure. Uh, It actually happened twice. It happened uh, once when individuals were throwing things at law enforcement standing behind me Mm -hmm. and a number of uh, law enforcement officers uh, approached the fence that is barricading the Brooklyn Center Police Department with their guns drawn and uh, guns drawn pointing at me. And uh, at that that moment, I had nowhere to turn for safety. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I slipped up and couple of cuss words came out. Uh, And then when I was struck with a rubber bullet uh, that was extremely painful and uh, unexpected, at that time, um, 
in contrast, there was no one around me doing anything. Mm. And so it felt like at that point on day four of protesting, officers were just firing off into the crowd. I just got hit. I got hit. You know, it has uh, caused this conversation to resurface because we were having conversations about militarized police response to protests last summer. Mm -hmm. But now uh, when, you know, you have, uh, there's a 19-year-old I know who was hit in the face and was told by his doctor if his bones don't heal properly in his face, he'll need plastic surgery. Wow. Individuals who have lost parts of their body, uh, you know, and this is all because of another officer involved shooting. And so, you know, Anthony, this has been a a very uh, difficult week, and I don't think any of us ever anticipated going into this trial that there would be anything that could happen that would overshadow Mm. the trial. But here we are, and people took their eyes off the courtroom and uh, started focusing in on demanding justice for Dante Wright. While they took their eyes off the courtroom, I saw Attorney Nelson ask for an acquittal, Mm. Mm. which many people didn't even talk about. Three days after another unarmed black man was killed by police, the defense attorney for uh, Derek Chauvin asked for an acquittal. Of course, that was denied. But the audacity... Uh, So... I missed that in the coverage, too. I thank you so much for bringing that up. Um, You know, we don't have a guest today so that we can unpack all these things that are going on, including hearing more about the defense and the resting of their case and and, and what happened this week and the lead up to that. Um, I'm I'm just a little struck by that. So I'm I'm taking a a little pause to just go, whoa, um, in regards to that. I want to play this sound clip for you. This um, comes from the the brother of Judge Floyd. Brandon Williams is standing in solidarity with the Wright family. And he had this to say about this happening so frequently. To the world, I just simply say, damn, again. And when I say damn again, I mean another black man or woman killed at the hands of the police using excessive force. If you look around, we're standing outside the courtroom, and my family is right here, right now, in the middle of the Derrick Chauvin trial for murdering my uncle George Floyd. In snow and freezing weather conditions, we came to stand with this family. Mm-hmm. And for what exact reason? A so-called mistaken, a so-called mistake? A handgun for a taser? It's unacceptable. You know, when is enough enough? Amen. Can you blame Dante for being terrified hey, as a we... black man in the custody of police? No. Amen. When you just watched here in Minneapolis, <laughs> George Floyd murdered right. at the hands of the very same police right. who was unarmed? Wow. Let's take a second to think about that. This this notion that during this trial, to the point that you made earlier, even the family of George Floyd is having to do what many of us are doing is while fighting for justice on the same hand, they have to turn around and be caretakers in solidarity with another family Mm. who's experienced the same tragedy for them. The soul weariness of this week 
I have appreciated throughout history, but it's only now that I'm starting to understand the soul weariness described by so many in our nation throughout our history. You know, I would have to agree. I think up until this week, I was able to maintain balance. Uh, You know, I've always throughout this entire trial uh, talked about the importance of self-care, encouraging those who are following along to care for themselves, sharing uh, that I have prioritized and made a commitment to hitting the gym as my release and my outlet. This week, I couldn't do that. Mm. This week, I felt like my responsibility uh, of being a storyteller was uh, more important than, I guess, (laughs) self-preservation, you know? At the end of the day, I have three daughters, three black daughters who will grow up to be black women, who will likely grow up to marry black men, who will likely grow up to have brown babies. And if I don't do everything that I can in this moment to amplify, document, change the narrative... If things don't change, then they will have to experience the same soul weariness. And so, uh, yeah, I've made some sacrifices so that I could show up in community where I'm needed. Uh, And and it's challenging and it's taxing. Uh, I know so many people have reached out, especially after uh, posting that I was hit by a rubber bullet and actually maced by police as well. Mm. It reached out, you know, it's so dangerous. It's not even worth it. You know, you're probably not getting paid a lot of money to be out there. I saw my grandmother post on your Facebook, go home. <laughs> she did. She did. Mother Lois, I love her. But but Anthony, it's dangerous to go out. Mm. But isn't it even more dangerous to stay home? I mean, the 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 implications of, you know, we we just on, on the recent counter stories episode had um a guest on who wrote a letter to their to her son. Um you know, just accepting the fact that I am sorry that I can't be there with this with, with, in, in these moments where you by yourself are alone at the whims of our own systemic structural failures. Like, like that is a realization that has always been present, but it, and not only we reminded of it over and over again, but it's resulting in 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 the erosion of this notice of safety, something that we as a nation, so for, for many of us in this nation, have been able to boast about as a, as a benefit for living in this country. And that is eroding mo- moment by moment now that these carnages are being televised, right? It's been around, but now they're being televised and put public in front of us yet again. Um, you, you were out um, covering multiple things at multiple times. At one point on Monday, I saw you present at both vigil and protest and live streaming um, and, and, and commenting on the trial that's happening. So, so we've got a lot of things that are happening all at the same time. So we've got the murder of Dante Wright on Sunday. And Sunday evening and afternoon, you're out covering people gathering in response to that, making sure that we call attention to that. By Monday, um, quarters back in session and you're simultaneously um, uh, recording the defense's attempts again to make an argument that George Floyd was responsible. And I want to get to some of the stuff that came up in there, which was wild. And then that night, by Monday night, 
you're covering the vigil and you're covering uh, the protest. Uh, you know, it definitely felt like I worked for a 24-hour <laughs> news station. Uh, the things that were going through my mind uh, was a need to be consistent for a community in in covering not just the trial, but now these new developments and, and understanding the severity of it. Uh, what to put this in context and and how just how overbearing it all is before Dante Wright was killed uh, many uh, community leaders were gathered actually in St. Paul to honor the life of Justin Tygen who was killed by St. Paul police more than 10 years ago that's right and before that event could even end they learned of Dante Wright and they caravan to Brooklyn Center to stand in solidarity uh, and, and so here the community is gathering to mourn one individual killed by police preparing for the verdict to come out by somebody else who was killed by police. And then now somebody new is killed by police. It, it, it's just it, it reaffirms the magnitude of this moment that we all were saying that. You know, this is a turning point. We're at ground zero. This is the epicenter. Well, it just, it continues to be affirmed. And uh, there's so much, you know, um, from even the... The response, right? I, I was asked a lot about like how how is the city responding? How is law enforcement responding? Well, think about this. So the the city, the state, really, I, I believe it was the state um, Operation Safety Net, the initiative that was brought forth by Governor Walls. Uh, it was a four phase plan uh, that involved um, deploying the National Guard during Phase Three and also deploring all interstate resources during phase three. So they had a plan to deal with angry protesters, looters, arson. Basically, they had a plan to mitigate everything that we saw last summer. And so they were anticipating that that would happen if there was a not guilty verdict. And so we already knew that law enforcement and state and city officials were preparing to deplore all of, uh, of these resources once closing statements start, right? Hmm. That was supposed to happen Monday. That got fast-tracked. Hmm. And so instead of entering into phase three during closing statements, they entered into phase three a week early because another person was killed by police. And, and since then, we've seen uh, a lot of the people who have been on the front lines, a lot of the credible leaders denouncing Operation Safety Net and saying it's not keeping people safe. It's actually harming our community. You're listening to Bearing Witness with Anthony and Georgia a part of the Racial Reckoning Project created and supported by Ampers, KMOJ Radio, and the Minnesota Humanities Center. A pattern both in responses to Dante Wright's murder, but then also in the, in the defense's arguments, this notion of compliance. We have this huge plan and safety net rolled out centered around, um, you know, comply, protest, and do this in the right way. Use this system in the right way, the one that's not working for folks. And then we are focused so much and putting so much resource into compliance. It seems to very close to the pattern that the defense was trying to make in there and with their witnesses that it was George Floyd's failure to comply that resulted in his death, that it was Dante Wright's failure to comply that resulted in his death. And this is being rung outside of 
of, you know, you might have to go outside of your own social media bubble to see what many in the nation are saying. There are folks who are 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 in full agreement that it was the lack of compliance that resulted in all of this. And of course, the the most recent uh, come to light shooting of 13 year old in Chicago. Right. So this notion of compliance seems to be over outstripping the need to correct the systemic problem that's here in front of us. You know, so when you were covering the the defense's witnesses and cases, and, and I got to commend some of the cross-examinations. The biggest takeaway for me with the defense was just that uh, they tried to find witnesses who could discredit the witnesses that had been brought forth by the prosecution. And uh, we know that the prosecution uh, really laid it thick in terms of finding um, people in law enforcement, the chief of police, the highest ranking lieutenant to denounce the uh, technique that was used by Derek Chauvin. And then uh, the prosecution was uh, equally as successful in finding medical professionals who could break down the science of the cause of death. And so I think that the defense, I don't know if this was their plan all along, but it seemed to me as though they had to make a last minute pivot. Mm. And instead of trying to uh, prove uh, that the cause of death was, you know, what it, what they were trying to imply that it was, they tried to discredit the prosecution's witnesses uh, in hopes that the jury would uh, believe their witnesses more. And I, I don't think that they were necessarily successful in, in doing that. Uh, but overall, I will say that in watching um, the few witnesses that were called forth by the defense, there was not much that was said during those testimonies that really uh, compelled me Um uh, or or that really stood out. There was a, uh, an interesting moment where they brought in something about the carbon monoxide from the exhaust. It, it, it seemed real flimsy to me, um, but there were folks who were, who felt like that was the, that was the, the winning point for the defense. And so what were they attempting to do with that, with that piece of information that just kind of flew in at the last minute? I I can't, Stop thinking about how all of this feels like we're being gaslit. Mm. You know, what they were trying to do is get Derek Chauvin off. What they're trying to do is plant a seed of doubt. What they're trying to do is called gaslighting. They are trying to uh, convince you, me, but more importantly, the jury that we didn't see what we saw. The the thing that really stood out for me was the look on the prosecution's face when they had to figure out, wait a minute, um, <laughs> the cross-examination I thought was masterful to pull out from the same witness that, you know, <laughs> I'm looking at the toxicology report. There's nothing in here that says anything to that and getting them to admit, oh, well, I mean, basically giving them to say, well, that's a hypothetical. To me, it 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 seems like it's pretty clear. And yet there's something in me that that can't shake the feeling like that that may have been enough. And I don't know what to do with that, especially given everything else that's happening this week. I think that's how we all are feeling. And, you know, I continuously think about the tremendous strides that we have made 
uh, but yet and still am reminded on how much further we have to go. Um, it, you know, kind of, I guess, pivoting back to, to Dante Wright, mm. you know, the initial demands for justice, I think about those protesters showing up at the crime scene, demanding justice for Dante Wright while his body is still laying on the ground. And because of that presence, because of that pressure, body cam footage was released in less than 24 hours. Think about that. Mm. 10 years ago, some families had to wait years before body cam footage was released. And they, you know, would say, oh, this case is under investigation. This is evidence in an investigation and it, it will jeopardize our investigation. The investigation, investigation, mm. right? That never led to any justice for black families for the most part. And so now here you're seeing body camera footage released in less than 24 hours to try to be transparent, uh, to to try to quell and negate any negative response. And uh, then it, it's like the messaging within the protester shifted. Hmm. Uh, after that happened, of course, people wanted Kim Potter fired, arrested. But before they could do that, she resigned, retaining all of her benefits, her pension, everything. And when she was charged, I believe officials felt that charging her with second-degree manslaughter would be sufficient and people would be content and go home. Mm. But to their surprise, people were still very upset. There was just as many protesters out there the day that she was charged as there were before she was charged. And the reason being is because it was like a slap in the face to the black community again. We've seen Officer Noor charged and convicted on a case that police say was accidental too. Mm. But he was charged with third degree. So how do you have third degree murder uh, in one instance that you classify as accidental and then now when the race roles are reversed and the officer is a white woman then you give her second-degree manslaughter. And so even now, the community is continuing to, to demand that her charges uh, you know, increase. Um, and it, it, the last thing I'll say is this. She was able to bail out of jail. And so basically, Kim Potter, the officer who uh, shot Dante Wright, uh, and then we know he died, uh, she spent less time in jail than some of the protesters who were arrested. That, <laughs> right, with 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 uh, thirty six hour and forty eight hour holds, um, before they could even before they could even get out. That is a that that point again underscoring this pattern. And then you have folks who will listen who will listen to that and and admonish folks for not protesting the right way, for not causing disruption disruption in a way that's comfortable or that is according to the quote unquote rules um, as a nation founded on <laughs> throwing off um, the compliance with European nations, right? We're, you know, this, this dissonance is, is mind boggling to me that we still are playing these things out and got to point out to your point are getting result. So, 
you mentioned, I heard you mentioned the the speed at which we got the video release, the speed at which um, pressure was mounted for the officer uh, to get arrested. I also saw the speed at which um, the staffing structure of Brooklyn Center was was changed. The city manager was fired. I know that there were some changes in the from the city council in terms of the powers of the mayor. What has been your your finding around what's happening in the government in Brooklyn Center? I haven't been able to confirm this, but one thing that I did hear about the city manager being fired is that it was a step that needed to happen in order for the mayor to have more control. Got it. In my opinion, I think the mayor may have been asking the city manager to do certain things. They weren't eye to eye. Mm. And so in order for the mayor to be able to do what he needed to do, uh, he he fired the city manager. In terms of the resignations, I I really wonder if that was a strategic move. If they were given the option to mm-hmm. resign, which is which is being which is common. It's, it's a common when you when you need to give folks out in many organizations. You give give folks out to resign to because things go much smoother. Yeah, and, and so I, I I speculate that as well, although that is not confirmed either. Okay. But what I, I will say about the mayor uh, of Brooklyn Center, who is a, a younger uh, African-American man, he, during some press conferences that were held overnight, really stood his ground uh, in, in terms of trying to find a balance between providing space for the protesters uh, but yet and still ensuring safety. Media was also putting pressure on the Brooklyn Center mayor to uh, to be transparent about who was authorizing the use of force, mm. who was authorizing the dispersal orders for media. And although I don't feel like there was a, a full, fully clear answer, uh, he did ensure that uh, media would not be requested to disperse anymore. And uh, when I went back out there uh, after he made that statement, I didn't hear it anymore. And uh, when uh, one of the uh, people in the press asked about, you know, who's authorizing uh, this level of, of force against protesters and do you have any control over it? And if you don't condone it, you know, if you're not for that, uh, why aren't you stepping up and speaking up? And if you're stepping up and speaking up, are they not listening? And uh, so after those very tough questions were asked, uh, we did see that next day, no tear gas was used, hmm. which I thought was very interesting. Uh, at that time, we saw law enforcement using mace hmm. uh, instead of tear gas. Uh, still shooting rubber bullets, but mace instead of tear gas. So it, it was interesting to see the media also apply pressure to uh, specifically the Brooklyn Center mayor and, and have that result in um, tangible changes the next day. There was a total 360 in approach to dealing with the protesters. And I'm I'm not sure why that is. But when I went out Thursday night, there was there was barely any law enforcement present present on the lawn of the Brooklyn Center Police Department. Hmm. There was barely any law enforcement. And as a result, 
the protests remained peaceful. Mm. No one, no one got hurt. And so I, I was perplexed. I, you know, had they have taken that strategy the entire time, how many people would not have sustained injuries? Mm. 79 people were arrested Tuesday evening. 24 people were uh, arrested Wednesday evening. Uh, to my knowledge, at this time, uh, no one really has a true, accurate tally on how many people were actually injured. Mm. I'm just, um, part of my mind is going immediately to the folks who are looking for, a, a, again, to how we open the show, this rewriting of reality um, of what's seen on the ground. There's the story of the folks who are experiencing on first, first on the ground and folks who are still holding on to our American mythos who will turn around and say, oh, well then what the police did seemed to work because the protesters got more in line over time. And so I'm seeing that response in community in terms of keeping the pressure on. Um, what's interesting is I'm also seeing quite a few spaces open up. I was part of a internet, what became an international prayer service on Wednesday night. So there seems to also be some marshalling in community around holding spaces for people experiencing this moment, counseling. I know Lutheran Social Services has put together counselors of color to be of support. So what's been your pulse on the ground for how communities also responding in terms of care? Definitely free services within the uh, therapy space, free services uh, within, um, you know, yoga instructors, mm. fitness instructors. I've seen people offering free chiropractic sessions, people offering free massages, uh, just anything that they can do to play their role. Uh, I've also seen individuals who... Uh, are not cut out, don't want to be on the front line, mm -hmm. but do want to see this pressure continue. And so they'll they'll show up in a different way. When you go to the protest, you'll notice at, at the intersection right in front of the Brooklyn Center Police Department, a spread of food mm. and dozens of cases of water. And so uh, to feed people who show up, uh, to provide beverages for the people who show up. Uh, after people were being tear gassed, there were a number of umbrellas that were donated to mm -hmm. help people shield themselves. Th those umbrellas also helped sh shielded people from being maced. Uh, it, gas masks were given out. Mm. And so when you see the community uh, using resources to equip people with what they need to stay healthy and stay safe while still uh, resisting and while still uh, 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 using pressure, you know, applying pressure. Uh, I, I think for me, uh, some of those, seeing some of those things can give you a renewed sense of community even, you know, that uh, we have what we need within our community and that we are, we're taking care of one another. We can't we can't underscore the the role and the expertise of the organizers, the prowess of the organizers and all of them, even at the vigil. Um, you know, the I was there with the interfaith Twin Cities interfaith chaplains. They had the orange vest. They set up uh, a tent for the family to stay under. And there was just there's there seems to be this seamlessness. And, and, and we miss all of the pre-planning and organizing and expertise of those organizers. Um you know, the, and the compassion, and the compassion, yes, the care, the devotion. 
the sacrifices they're making, the time that they're investing into doing these things. When, when you mentioned uh, the vigil for Dante Wright, I was reminded of the fist that oh, has right. been set up there. And when I heard that, you know, I am inspired in, in these times by a lot of the art that mm-hmm. has been created uh, during this time, you know, whether it was the uh, plywood murals uh, on businesses or even just the artwork that you see, the statues, the billboards that have gone up mm-hmm. uh, post-George Floyd. And so I I was moved to tears when I saw that uh, they were putting up a fist at the site where Dante Wright was killed and the original fist that was put up at the intersection where George Floyd was killed was taken down uh, because people felt like it would not be able to withstand winter. Mm. And it was replaced with something that was, uh, you know, looked very similar. Uh, But whoever had it said, you know, I think this is a good time to bring it back out. That is a powerful story. You know, I... I, I I gotta draw attention to the to to the pulse that you keep on the artists who are helping to tell this story. I, wa- I remember watching your video um, covering the painting of the Black Lives Matter um, street mural that was being done and the coverage of that and the thought process of all the artists there. You know, we got to remember who's marking this moment if we're going to call ourselves bearing witness in this moment. Now that we've got all these things happening around us, we have to get ready for a verdict. You know, what are the expectations? What are folks thinking? I know folks in my community have three three thoughts. <laughs> if, a, if a verdict comes back quick, that's good. If it doesn't, that's very, 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 very bad. And so there's a lot of conversation back and forth in my circles um, along that. What are you hearing in terms of people's expectations? I think people are hoping for the best and preparing for the worst. Mm. <laughs> that can be the description for being black and brown in America and indigenous in America. <laughs> We've explored two different verdicts, mm-hmm. guilty, not guilty, you know, uh, hoping for the best, preparing for the worst. In the event that it's a hung jury, do you think that we will still see a, a response in the community that is similar to if the verdict was not guilty? So- I'm more concerned about the the liminal space that happens if there's an inconclusive, right? Or if there's something procedural that's problematic because folks are afraid in, in when there's a clear goal, either in opposition or in celebration of a, of a decision that many folks want to see, um, that creates some structure, right? There's some, some things to rally around. I think if there's an inconclusive, if there's a hung jury, I am I am more concerned in that case because it leaves folks not kind of it leaves this gap. And if we know anything about people that in the absence of of knowledge and the absence of fact something else can take its place. That's what I actually am more concerned about. Like that that gives me anxiety. Even more so than a a, a an acquittal. Well, and I think people are preparing for a lot of a community response, a lot of protesting. And if the verdict is not guilty, uh, people are concerned that what happened after George Floyd died is going to happen again. And I think there's a part of me that suspects if the jury is hung, 
we could likely see a lot of protesters uh, who are frustrated with this judicial process, this system uh, that continues to fail us. And uh, yeah, I mean, we've seen uh, House Rep John Thompson, who's a friend of Philando Castile, use his new position and his voice and his experience to try to expedite bills uh, that, you know, would produce substantial changes for police accountability. Uh, but I I just don't, I don't know if people will be that level-headed if that's the way that the trial swings. You know, there, there's another fear that, I, that is looming for me. Um, I guess it's more of an apprehension, but that if there is, um, if there is a hung jury that it feeds, it feeds a, um, a conspiracy based, um, mm. an acquittal would make, would, would give a, a fuel to those folks to say, ha, we won, um, that, uh, a conviction will, will, make folks pause and have to think about and, and maybe have to ac- acquiesce and say, because now I have to contend with the legal system that I'm trying to say is the law of the land, just, just made a decision. And I, in order to fight against that, I have to then condemn the very system that I'm trying to uphold in status quo. So that, that, that can cause a, a pause with the hung jury. I'm concerned <laughs> that it leaves room for a lot of this, Conspiracyness stuff to fester in a way that will bring out counter protest move. Uh, a group of folks who are looking for some kind of narrative that upholds this American myth that we talked about at the beginning of the show. So those are some of the things that are are, are coming to mind for me in that middle space of a hung jury. I got to say, if it hasn't been said to you already, I know everybody has, you know, there's a lot of people who've posted it online, um, but it's been inspiring seeing your dedication, telling this story on the front line through all of this, putting yourself in that front line in harm's way. And I wouldn't, I I wasn't trying to call you out in the beginning. It just, it was a moment of realness that I really resonated with when I saw your reaction um, to what was happening there on the, on on the front line. Um, And I don't know where you got the gas mask from, but thank you, whoever, (laughs) <laughs> Disco tea. Okay, okay. That's what's <laughs> there were a few others who offered, uh, but uh, the convenience uh, we live in proximity to one another, nice. and so I was able to just swing by and pick it up, and picked it up right before I went to the protest, mm. and uh, that gas mask saved me from being maced in the face. Mm. So it it was right on time. And I think, you know, it's those small signs, right? Here, someone just was like, you need this. I'm like, okay. And uh, the very day that I got it, I I did need it. Mm. I did. And, you know, I think that uh, folks who are uh, in this and, and showing up in whatever capacity, we're all showing up in different roles, uh, but when you see those little signs, you know that you're covered. And so uh, I want to thank you, my brother, for keeping us covered in prayer, uh, for your family keeping us covered in prayer. I, I did have to apologize to Mother Lois <laughs> because uh, when she inboxed me, you know, I knew she saw what happened. So I knew she heard me cuss. I was like, oh, mama, I'm so sorry I was cussing. <laughs> She's like, I don't care if you was cussing. Are you okay? Are you okay? See. <laughs> Got gotta love it, you know. Um, it was by that. It was by my grandmother's hands and being pulled into a sweat ceremony from some native brothers and sisters, where I got my call 
officially in the ministry. So so I, I can resonate with that pull aside from Mother Lois checking on you. Um, yeah, and you know what? I can't emphasize how much uh, those prayers mean, you know, because uh, prayer is powerful. And uh, even in thinking about how I was hit with a rubber bullet and mm. interviewing people who sustained severe injuries, it could have been a lot worse for me. Mm. It could have been a lot worse. Uh, I just, I want to thank uh, the intercessors, mm. the people who are interceding for not just the protesters, but for our country in this moment, uh, because prayer is powerful. There's a picture that you posted on the evening you got home, and it's you and your baby girl. And looking at your weariness in there, and yet care, many folks know Jim Bear Jacobs, um, who is a, an indigenous uh, faith leader. Um, you can often find him when the chaplains are present, uh, smudging in the area, uh, along with other, other faith leaders. Um, he told me a story about his daughter um, the concern and the interaction with with our children, and we 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 go out, we 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 work, and we and we try to move the needle, and then we come home in a space and have to be both caretakers when we need to be cared for. And I think that picture captured um, some of the multiple duties. You know, it, you know, there's there's that there's <laughs> that saying that's popping around in memes. If hard work was the measure of your success. Uh, then black women in this world uh, should be multi-billionaires, and yet that's not the case. So there's got to be something else in the water. I think that picture captured a lot of this soul weariness moment that has us still needing to move forward even while we are being hurt. And so I know we usually end with how we are being us, but I think we've we've kind of been describing that throughout our conversation today since we didn't have a guest with us. But you know, I got to tell you, what's challenged me this week um, is our saying, may your revolution be healing. And I found myself have struggling with that because it hasn't felt healing this week. And I think one of the things that has stood with me is only a part of that. I'm, many of us are struggling just to have our revolution be. And that has looking at that picture, that's what came to my mind is, is, you know, we're fighting for all of these different things and we want it to be healing, but can our revolution just happen to make changes as you alluded to earlier? So, you know, I'm, I'm saying this because, you know, it's the moment for us to say, to give that saying from Dr. Joy Lewis, but in my mind right now, <laughs> I don't know that I can honestly state that full saying where I'm feeling right now beyond may the revolution be. I'm, I'm there with you. I, this week, I definitely lost my center. I lost my balance. I lost the, the space. I gave up the space I was holding for myself. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I made that decision. Uh, I had to, I had to uh, switch my priorities. Mm. I made that decision. I switched my priorities to... Uh, be the eyes that the community needed. Uh, but, you know, even in, in the midst of uh, not feeling like this is healing, I know that we still stand on the shoulders of our ancestors. 
And I know that uh, there is a strength in our ancestry and resilience. Even even when things don't don't look a certain way, we must keep our faith. Mm. We must keep our faith. And uh, it's okay to not be okay. Mm. It's okay to be overwhelmed and exhausted. And, you know, if you overextend yourself uh, because you have to do all the things, we have to show up. Like I said, it's people saying it's dangerous to show up, but I think it's even more dangerous to not show up. And that's why I made the sacrifices I made. Well, I thank you always for bringing that perspective. So I'll go ahead and end us today with the statement from an aspirational place. In the words of Dr. Joy Lewis, may our revolution be healing. This is Bearing Witness. This is Bearing Witness with Anthony and Georgia. This show is a production of Racial Reckoning, The Arc of Justice, a journalism project created and supported by Ampers, Diverse Radio for Minnesota's Communities, in partnership with KMOJ Radio and the Minnesota Humanities Center.